Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by George Dunn, who has previously done a podcast with me on the films of the brothers Nolan, and who has literally written and edited books on philosophy and pop culture, and Peter Pike from the University of Wisconsin, who is more of an expert than the two of us on our subject for today, the movies of Park Chan-wook, and especially two movies in his Vengeance trilogy, Old Boy and Lady Vengeance. These movies came out in 2003 and 2005. They're to an extent reflections on the transformations of Korean society, on class separations, generational separations, and on separations that look more like ancient and modern themes. From the small cast of characters to the concentration of the action to the moral intensity of the events depicted, they recall again and again tragedy. And this is why we're trying to introduce Park Chan-wook to American audiences who may have not yet seen many of his movies. So this is our self-appointed task. George Peter, please introduce yourselves. Okay, I'm George Dunn. As you mentioned, I've edited several books on philosophy and popular culture and also do research in social and political philosophy and several figures in the history of philosophy. I'm Peter Paik. I've been teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for the past 17 years, and presently I have a research position at Yonsei University in Seoul, South Korea. I wrote a book titled From Utopia to Apocalypse, Science Fiction and the Politics of Catastrophe, which came out in 2010, which focuses on depictions of revolutionary upheaval in contemporary science fiction texts, focusing mostly on the comics of Alan Moore. And nowadays I'm doing research on a variety of topics, including the 19th century French novel. Yes, I have noticed you are again and again posting on Stendhal, and I hope somehow to finagle that into a future podcast. I don't know yet how, but I'm very interested. Peter, I think you have to do the honors. We're all admirers of the movie maker, but I think you know more about Park Chan-wook. So help our audience get an introduction to him. He was born, I believe, to an academic family and attended Sogang University, which is a Catholic university in the middle of Seoul, not far from Yonsei. And Sogang is notable also because it was the university that the previous president, who was impeached, Park Geun-hye, attended. I really doubt that their circles crossed because Hawk, I think, generally was associated with uh, leftist circles. And, of course, he came of age during the period of the pro-democracy movement, which, of course, sought to replace the military government, which was founded by the father of Park Geun-hye with a democratic government. And he was a student of philosophy, uh, which I think really comes out in his films. He also had a very strong interest in cinema. And after he graduated, he made a debut feature, which I haven't seen, called The Moon is the Sun's Dream. But it was actually in 2000 that he got the chance to make a film called Joint Security Area, which broke all uh, box office records in South Korea up to that point. Joint Security Area is about a forbidden friendship between South Korean and North Korean soldiers who have the task of staring at each other across the most militarized border in the world. And on the wave of that uh, breakthrough, he then made the Vengeance Trilogy, for which he won the grand prize at the uh, Cannes Film Festival for um, Old Boy, of course. After the Vengeance Trilogy, he's also made films which have been successful and provocative. He also made a film in the United States, in Hollywood, 
you know, some people have pointed out that perhaps he has lost some of the passion that we see in the Vengeance trilogy. His latest film, The Handmaiden, is very interesting. The publicity around it focuses on the uh, lesbian relationship between the main characters. But what I think is really transgressive about the film is that it takes a revisionist view of the Japanese occupation of Korea. I think it may actually wind up um, signaling a new phase in the relations between South Korea and Japan, hopefully opening up uh, more dialogue about that uh, historical period. That sounds very interesting. I have not yet got to see it. I know that, George, you also have seen The Handmaiden. How did it strike you? I thought it was a terrific film. I really enjoyed it. I didn't think about it in terms of the contemporary relationship between um, South Korea and Japan, but I thought it was just a magnificent piece of storytelling, and I'd recommend it to anybody. Glad to hear it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. If I recall, it just came out in 2017. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well then, gentlemen, let's move on to the Vengeance Trilogy. We will not be discussing now the first entrance in that trilogy, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. It has been translated into English. But we'll move on to the main event, as Peter pointed out, Old Boy won the great prize at Cannes and has been sensational in the West to the extent that it was remade in Hollywood by Spike Lee with a very interesting cast led by Josh Brolin. It was a prestige rather than a popular project, but it speaks to the interest this strange and provocative story raised. So I think we should start with an overview of the plot so that we get a sense of the important things we're trying to get through in sequence. And of course, this means that we will be spoiling everything we can think of if it sounds interesting. (laughs) And there are quite a few significant spoilers that will be revealed. Yes, we think that the movie is quite a tragedy and about as powerful, if not more powerful, on a second watching, so don't worry. Okay, so it begins on a rainy night in Seoul where you have a a drunken man who's been uh, taken into police custody for disorderly behavior. And um, the film is a series of um, cuts, you know, where he encounters these different uh, unsavory characters while he continues to act in a very reckless and provocative way towards both the authorities and the criminals who are brought into the police station. And a friend comes to bail him out, but as they go out into the street, he winds up being kidnapped. And this is taking place on his daughter's birthday. Yeah, it's her fourth birthday coming up. They're trying to call her from a phone Mm -hmm. booth in the street in the middle of the night in the rain. And as his friend, who's not drunk, is dialing and trying to talk to his wife, he disappears. He's abducted. And then he winds up in a private prison. It looks like a cheap motel where he's kept for 15 years. The only people he has in contact with are the guards who pass his meals through a slot at the bottom of the door. Occasionally, they fill the room with Valium so that uh, they can check his vital signs, cut his hair, clean the apartment, and so on. And his only link to the outside world is his television set, in which he learns that his wife has been murdered and that the police have named him as the main suspect. And so during this period, he finds his sanity being tested until a decisive point arrives, though, when he realizes that He can either vegetate and go mad, or he can draw upon and develop really his inner strength, try to survive, and then find out who did this to him and why. The film sets up a kind of a quest for knowledge in which uh, the main character who at the beginning is a fairly unpleasant and unsavory character, a man who feels very much embittered at life, resentful and cheated all the time, who acts out on these feelings by having affairs with uh, other men's wives who probably also feel the same frustration. 
And then the experience of captivity gives him this purpose and incentive to rise above himself. This intense desire for knowledge you know, leads him to this first uh, a physical, mental, and you could even say a spiritual transformation, a kind of uh, conversion experience that takes place while he's a prisoner. Yes, and then suddenly he is liberated. He finds himself even more bewildered because he doesn't understand the source of his freedom or its character. And so his instinct is to revert to his own form of self-knowledge, affirming his own dignity by getting revenge on whoever did it to him. Yeah, of course, he's always provided with things, right? I mean, the interesting thing about the film is that even as he develops into this incredibly strong-willed, as well as physically capable person, it's right when he's on the verge of escaping from the motel, when he's knocked out a brick, right? And he can actually, he feels the rain on his hand and realizes escape is within reach, that the next morning, suddenly, he finds himself placed inside a suitcase. And he comes out of it and realizes that he's on the rooftop of the high-rise. So there's this interesting depiction of an ordeal that he goes through while the society around him changes. He is kidnapped in 1988 before the Seoul Olympics, which signaled, again, a big uh, political shift in the country. It was during the uh, run-up to the Olympics that the military government began to show a great deal more restraint. They realized they had to, in some sense, behave themselves you know, before the world stage. And the protests of 86 and 87, in which uh, the students were joined by you know, ordinary middle-class people in the streets, uh, made the government realize that they had to hold elections. They had to have uh, free and fair elections. And so this man literally loses his freedom, as he understands it, right at the moment when Korea is gaining its freedom politically, as yes. a democracy, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he also misses all these other key events. So the next would be the Asian financial crisis less than 10 years later, you know, where many South Koreans were afraid that the economy would collapse. And it brought an end to an economic system that was based on full employment. So after 97, then you have um, a kind of a neoliberal capitalism taking hold in South Korea with the widening divide between rich and poor, between the successful and unsuccessful, which is still very much the case today. The other events, of course, include uh, 9-11, the World Cup tournament that was held by both South Korea and Japan, and then he's set free in uh, 2003. Yes, and also the British handover of Hong Kong to China, that Mm -hmm. uh, this startling sense of the reassertion of Asian regimes. And now he is free in a new world that is undergoing changes which he has only witnessed on TV as popular culture and news. And he has to face this world and repeatedly puts himself through fairly basic tasks on this supposition. Could things that you just imagined or practiced in your room be Mm -hmm. practiced in the real world? Do they have any correlative to the Korea you have to face up to now? And nevertheless, these events are external to him, not just in the sense that he has no freedom, but in the sense that he is not free to be part of this world because his purpose is unchanging. It is to seek revenge. He doesn't have an interest in Korea as it is or as it was. He has an interest in revenge. Right. And Korea is just a place where he goes seek it. Yeah, so he's trapped in his own past. After he gets out, he receives a telephone from somebody, a homeless guy, a vagrant, and a wallet full of checks. And the phone rings, and at the other end of the phone is his captor, who asks him about how it feels now to be 
in a bigger prison. And so the idea is that even though he got out of that hotel room in which he had been in prison for 15 years, he's still imprisoned in a way. He's imprisoned by his past. He's also still socially isolated because he can't contact any of his old associates because he is wanted for his wife's death. And so, as you said, he's a man with a mission. It's a twofold mission. One is to gain knowledge. He wants to understand why this happened to him. And also he wants to find out who did it to him and punish that person. Yeah. So there is one element extraneous to his sense of who he is as a man looking for vengeance. A man who can avenge himself on people who humiliate or harm him is in a certain sense free because he is not their captive in that sense. He overcomes people who try to end him or put limits to his actions. Now, the element extraneous to this is, of course, that he has a young daughter he makes some efforts to get a hold of. This was the daughter he wanted to call. As desperate as he was, he was capable of fatherly love as a dissolute man before his capture. And, of course, he wants to find out about her again, and again he cannot reach her. He believes a story that suggests that she was sent for adoption to Sweden, a world away and that he has no access to her. This doesn't bother him that much. This is not the primary thing that moves him. Mm -hmm. And so he's fairly satisfied to go back to his sense of mission because that is that for which he had been training. This man goes in his imprisonment from trying to slash his veins to make an end of it to trying to find a purpose to live And so this leads him to some personal training. He turns himself into a fighter. Mm -hmm. He uses his anger and turns it into pain in a way that's not self-destructive. Every time he tries to commit suicide, he's gassed to sleep and held back to health. But when he turns into a fighter, nobody stops him. There's a kind of pain you can use and there's another pain you can't. There's a distinction Mm -hmm. there. But also there is his understanding of his own misery in social terms. He comes to loathe himself because he keeps a notebook of everybody he ever slighted. He could have a reason. He assumes, as we all do, that there is a moral character to events, that somebody did this to him for a reason. And therefore, if he knows whom he hurt, slighted, humiliated, then he will know who had a reason to take such a revenge upon him. He already assumes that the character of human suffering is defined by revenge. Mm Mm-hmm. But he learns this way that he's a scumbag, that he's an asshole, that he has harmed so many people that he begins to loathe himself. He says, I always thought I was just a regular Joe, but he's not, and now he knows it. And to some extent, he has to embrace some of this. It is part of his darkness that makes it possible for him to gain powers. Yes, and I think the film also implies that this acquisition of power also kind of makes him a superior person. Yes. That he's not... Um, One of the people succeeding in a capitalist economy who are following the rules, who not only have social advantages, but also kind of exploit them. Revenge is almost a moral purpose or has Mm -hmm. the force of a moral purpose in the film. He's no longer petty. He's incredibly driven. Right. And every moment of his life is lived with this intense desire to learn. Right. And also to then act. What emerges is that he's a figure of a kind of master. A person who achieves mastery over his desires, over himself, right? But for a purpose which certainly is not moral, right? And certainly not socially, you know, beneficial. 
Yes, so we have to deepen this characterization of his relation to society. He used to be an asshole, shameless, and therefore a social outcast, but he also used to hurt people. Now he no longer wants to hurt people and he no longer allows himself to, but he's even more of a social outcast than before because now he believes he stands alone. And we mm -hmm. learn at a certain point in his mission that he has a new credo that you have to live by a certain secret to be who you are and that means trust nobody whenever you encounter anybody tell them a secret make up a secret that will bind you to that person and see if that's betrayed in any way mm -hmm. so that you can test anybody that you might trust he's conceiving rules for how he might allow any community with any other person under the rules of his own vengeful skepticism but isn't but, that kind it's... of the rule of a king He's strangely powerful and masterful, as you say, because now he thinks of himself as a have, not a have-not, in the sense yeah. that he has a lot to lose and he has to be guardful, no longer dissolute and just shouting or doing whatever. His new master is a self-master and he's jealous as a guardian of his new yeah. powers. But isn't it interesting that what fuels this self-transformation is his desire for vengeance? He wants to master his circumstances. He wants to understand the world, understand what happened to him. He wants to get vengeance against the person who did that. But in order to do that, in order to become a master in that sense, a master of his circumstances, he has to first master himself. Right? And so that's what fuels the entire self-transformation. Now, Peter, you suggested that that's an immoral or maybe amoral motivation. But, I mean, wouldn't it depend upon what your morality is? Certainly, I mean, it's contrary to a Christian morality, which says that, you know, we ought to turn the other cheek, we ought to forgive. But, I mean, if we think of this movie as being in part about the contrast between modern mores and pre-modern mores, yes. isn't this the idea of revenge, or the person who is able to successfully seek revenge, isn't that a pre-modern moral ideal? Isn't that considered a mark of human excellence in some societies? Oh, yes, certainly among the pagan Greeks. Right. right. That, but this is a morality of the master. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Um, you know, as like you said, uh, he's a kind of king. As a king, he also has to be a judge. He has to be able to mm -hmm. enact justice. I think in the democratic post-Christian age, there's something incredibly dark, but also incredibly alluring about such a figure. It's almost as though he's this archaic being who has suddenly emerged um, mm -hmm. in a society where people are far less capable, right? Or far less knowledgeable or far less driven. Mm-hmm. Right, um, yes. And so the film, I think, presents a very interesting ambivalence about democracy. You know, if democratic mores unfold, doesn't that leave us more vulnerable to the few people who are capable of overcoming themselves in this way? Yes. Right, um, in the Korea of 2003, he's literally a creature of the past. Yeah. Moreover, you could say that one basis for democracy, specifically in the relation to justice and vengeance and punishment, is that Christians and Jews believe that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Yeah. Right. All people are equal in not having that allowed. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so he's usurping what many people would regard as a divine prerogative. Yes. Or if not anymore a divine prerogative, a prerogative of the state. Right, so we still point. so it's private revenge that we reject. If the state is taking revenge on our behalf, that's okay. Yep. But if you uh, allow the state to take revenge, I mean, doesn't that, in some sense, highlight your weakness? I agree with you on this. Right, that the state is a powerful actor, but the state's interest in revenge is never you. It punishes mm -hmm. right, exactly. because the state is also a jealous god. Its mm -hmm. prerogative over violence has been violated, and it is in outreach to that that the state punishes. 
your mm -hmm. interest in avenging a personal crime, a family crime, that's no concern of the state. The state has no mm -hmm. family and right. uh, does not feel the fears and the love of the flesh. Well, that's one way in which we distinguish between so-called justice and so-called vengeance. Right? Vengeance is personal, whereas justice ideally is supposed to be impersonal. Yes. Right? And as you said, when the state punishes, it's not punishing on behalf of the victim. As far as the state is concerned, the victim is the state. The victim is the social order. The transgression was a transgression against the law, first and foremost, not against the individual who was harmed. Yes, and that implies a certain structure of symbolism. From the mm. point of view of our modern individualist politics, there is a shadowy, mannequin-like figure of the man, the human being, the citizen, who symbolizes that something the state says, the law says, has been denied and has to be mm -hmm. rectified. The person in the flesh who was violated or destroyed is of no importance to the state, and indeed, life is supposed to go on. Yeah. But of course, people who look at the news and hear about terrifying murders, people who watch shows or movies, like our shows and movies are getting darker and more violent because we are aware mm -hmm. at some level that we are not that shadowy figure, man in the abstract or the citizen. We are vulnerable flesh and blood individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the other structure of symbolism. The man who can take his own vengeance knows who he is. He can mm -hmm. assert his identity and defend it. His sense of right doesn't have to be abstracted and delegated to an impartial authority that doesn't care if he lives or dies. Right. I think that's a very good point. And Desu, by the way, Peter, am I pronouncing his name correctly? Desu. Desu, okay. So Desu becomes that individual in his captivity because he has no choice. He's taken out of society the influences of society, which when he comes out, he no longer belongs to that society because it's changed so much. So he has no choice but to become an individual while he's in captivity. Yes, and he has shed his social ties, or almost mm -hmm. all of them. His wife has been murdered, his daughter has disappeared, so his own family has been wiped out. He has been rendered an individual against his will. Mm -hmm. But also, everybody else moved on with their lives. Nobody mm -hmm. carried the torch for him during that absence. And so in his return to society, he returns to the bottom of society. He moves mm -hmm. among criminals. He looks like a criminal. He's disheveled in the streets, sometimes bloodied or injured. His friends and enemies tend to be gangsters or criminals or what have yeah. you. And the activity is mostly legal. That's how he would fit in this new world. And there's a suggestion there that what lies in the lower classes where respectable people dare not look might recall mm -hmm. ancient powers. That yeah. people who are mm -hmm. not very invested in conforming because of their success to the modern rules of democracy, equality, mm -hmm. working for your rewards and your dignity, they might find other resources and especially with respect to justice, because if you're part of the criminal underworld, you can't count on the police or the law courts to secure justice for you. That becomes something that you have to take care of for yourself. And you do that by means of revenge, being the baddest son of a bitch on the block so that others will be afraid to commit any transgressions against you. Yeah, I think what the film highlights is the divide between what John Baudrillard, the French theorist, would call uh, the quick death and the slow death. That when people find themselves at the short end of power, they can either choose a quick death, which is the fate of the master, you know, to be killed, i.e. and sacrificed, 
or the slow death, which is to be exploited, you know, to have one's life placed at the service of a higher social power. Baudrillard associates the quick death with sovereignty, with mastery, right? And I think it's the jump that Desu makes towards the quick death that defines him, this transformation, that he is a person who is ready to die a quick death if it means that he can achieve his goals. So I think this might be an interesting juncture at which to introduce Eugen, who we find out is the person who is responsible for holding Desu captive. Eugen is an incredibly elusive figure, incredibly rich, and yet he is in regular contact with the underworld in which Desu circulates. And whereas Desu is incredibly strong and powerful, Eugen gets the better of him by revealing that he is actually very weak. Right. He says during their first encounter, you know, if you kill me, he says, you know, if you uh, attack me, I can kill myself <laughs> so that you will never find out why I had you kidnapped for 15 years. Yeah. And that reveals that there may be something that a man who does not fear death and Odessu no longer fears death. Mm-hmm. The, his first interaction with people is fighting it out. And he takes on multiple assailants just to figure out whether he can. As you pointed out from Baudrillard, this is a recollection of Hegel's dialectic of master and slave. Master is he who is willing to risk his life in combat. Slave is he who is not because he loves life more than honor. Or we would say it's just being reasonable. (laughs) And uh, Odessu is no longer reasonable. And yet there is a way to reason with him through some fear. And this is of course very important that the source of reason is in fear. And as you point out, his captor and tormentor, this elusive character who's so much more intelligent, cunning and deliberate, full of plans and designs, tells him, would you risk my death? Odessu has to accept that, no, no, he can't, because he depends on this person to find out the truth. He cannot have any access to that truth by himself. And this suggests two things. First of all, that the character of that truth is private. That's what's so striking, of course, about the movie and about ourselves. Why aren't we satisfied with studying some new technological science to figure out the answers to the important questions? Why do we bother as audiences with movies where all these fictional particular secrets are told by people who are not particularly scientifically knowledgeable? We all know that there's some kind of private secret that we're trying to find out. And the second thing that Odessu has to confront is that he's not able to figure it out by himself that he has to be led into a further darkness than the one he has already traversed. His willingness to avoid the sunlight of democracy, capitalism, and society drags him into the darkness, but it's nowhere near enough because there are secrets he cannot even remember having forgotten. Yeah. So now he has to play by the rules of this strange captor. He is given clues which come in the form of poetry not in the form of, say, equations. He's not supposed to get clever or get some expertise to help him. He's supposed to find what human experience corresponds to the stories he's being told, what mood will reveal to him the deep, dark secrets that haunt him. I think it's significant that Wu Jin is able to exploit the fact that despite the fact that Desu is so intent on revenge, there's something that's more important to him at least at one point, and that is discovering the truth. Yes, and there's a passage here, right? We've slipped from politics to something deeper, like poetry or philosophy, because if it were a practical matter, he should just destroy the people who have captured him, and there is your freedom now. Mm -hmm. And think about it. You've lost 15 years of your life, but look at all the powers you have gained. 
you could be a, some kind of crime boss yourself or you could go right. off into obscurity and live out a private life or there would be options for a practical man but we have yeah. moved from something like power to something like truth which turns mm -hmm. out to be way slipperier and you have to be an individual and take risks to get to it but it's mm -hmm. not enough he's learning that being individual is not enough mm -hmm. yeah. and he goes from being achilles to being odysseus and his captor then is like the sphinx right who poses riddles to him and desu proves his superiority not simply by overpowering his adversary physically but by solving his riddles as peter has emphasized through his captivity he becomes kind of a superman kind of an ubermensch right and at least at this point in the narrative, I think the Odyssean element predominates. Yes, he's not mm -hmm. fighting a fight. He goes on a search. He has to find out secrets. But here I think is the really interesting twist of the film, is that everything that Desu becomes, a superior man, a master, a king of the underworld, a person with immense willpower as well as physical prowess, are what Wujin wants him to become. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, so everything that Tezu is, is what Wujin wants him to be. Of course, Tezu doesn't quite know that for most of the film, but that is also one of the key secrets that he discovers. Tezu thought that his cultivation, his refashioning of himself was something that he did out of his own freedom, which is you know true, but that freedom contains this other dimension of captivity, which is that he has become someone that another person desires him to be, and this other mm -hmm. person is not his father or is not his wife, it's actually his worst enemy the incredible enigma at the heart of old boy that you have an enemy who wants the main character to become almost a god that's the irony while desu is seeking revenge he's actually enacting somebody else's revenge plot yeah. unawares yes he starts with an inkling of this that we all have if i find myself suffering at the hands of other people what crime could possibly have called forth this punishment? And that's a way of moving towards rationality. It's a way of asking, this is the effect with which I live. What cause can have caused it? What is the shape of the man, mm -hmm. as far as I can describe it in his effects? What intention, and therefore mind, lies to be discovered, deciphered in mm -hmm. there? Yeah. Justice so his... is our way of being rational about people. Which means that in order to discover who his captor was, he has to discover something about himself. So it becomes a journey of self-discovery. Yes, and without realizing it, he is turning his enemy into his teacher because he must prove at some level that what he is suffering was deserved. And you could say that the pattern of punishment and the original of justice is tit for tat. Mm-hmm. How is he going to know who would do something to him like this? Well, he knows how bad he has it, and that means that he must have done something as bad to somebody in return. You have to turn life into a pattern, into a structure. And of course, mm -hmm. our impersonal justice with its strange ceremonies of objectivity itself also tries to do tit for tat, to have punishment mm -hmm. that is proportional with the crime, restitution that is proportional to the outrage. All these things are somehow supposed to be measured, and in being measured to measure out even. It has to be the same for the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, this does mean that he has to admit that there is an author to his situation and that working out a way out of his predicament means learning from that and therefore thinking in the same way. He is already acquiescing to a dark revelation about himself that he might not be able to live with 
what Odesu is never capable of thinking, either when he's fighting to become a superman or when he's trying to slash his veins and put an end to it, is that maybe it's better in jail. Maybe all the terrible stuff in your life, all the stuff you've done, all the stuff you're suffering, just let it be. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. enough. Don't make it worse. And that shows that there's something indomitable in him. And you can see how his master, so to speak, the designer of all these plots, could live off of this as a form of hope. Here is a man who will not give up. The worse life gets for him, the stronger he gets. Mm -hmm. There's a source of hope there. I think there's also a kind of a kivoy, right? What do you want? I think is a key question of the film. So what does Ujin want? I think Wujin's plot is born from a very, well, perverse, but very authentic desire for true communion, right? That he wants Desu to give him something, but he doesn't want to tell Desu what it is. He wants Desu to figure it out for himself. He gives him clues, but ultimately when he tells him, well, you know, it was your tongue that caused all Mm -hmm. this grief in my life, Desu then works out, well, that is what I have to give him. Yes. This is the moment everything has been moving towards. This evil captor, what's so striking about him is how astute he is in a way that has nothing to do with crafting plans or things like that. He has learned from suffering and injustice, as he sees it, that the pattern of justice as tit for tat never satisfies. because it takes out the human experience. It becomes Mm -hmm. the same for the same. Like every murder case is a murder case, grammatically, legally, procedurally, but not to the family of the murder victim, not to the murder victim itself, not to the murder. To all of them, it's personal. Mm -hmm. There is an experience there that is impossible to reproduce in law or in public life, that is. Nevertheless, we're always hunting for it in these movies, in these stories, in the news clips or the news videos that tell us, oh my god, an atrocity (coughs) happened and we're curious about it. It's the irreducible mystery of individuality, that is to say, somebody's personal experience is involved in there in a way that makes him a stranger to all of us. He has something mm-hmm. all of us do not have. Yeah. And Odesu is supposed to gain that. The losses that he is suffering are supposed to add up to one specific form of gain. He's supposed to end up being in the situation and experiencing the ordeal of humanity like his captor. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. as, as George pointed out, you have to notice that throughout his new powers, the acquisition and the exercise of them, Odesu is playing out a script somebody else wrote for him. He's Mm -hmm. never forced to act in that role, but the role was designed. He's both free and unfree, but that is also true of his captor, who has to invest all his considerable powers into creating this new creature that maybe won't be stuck in the past. They are both stuck in the past because of a crime that connects them. And we will Mm -hmm. have to get to this revelation to see what they have in common and how and what their communion could be. But I will suggest that what his captor is looking for is somebody stronger than himself. Somebody who could go through the crime that he has gone through and come out be able to live with it. Someone who will not be broken in the way he had been. One of the things that you mentioned, Titus, which I think is important to give some attention to, is the fact that that we think of justice in terms of tit-for-tat, in terms of a kind of symmetry, you know, we see about getting even, balancing the scales. But, you know, of course, the kind of justice that's administered by the court can never be that. 
Uh, there's always some substitution, right? So what's the punishment for rape? Well, you don't get raped. You know, you do a prison term of a certain length, right? Whereas in the kind of revenge that Wu Jin fashions, I think his aim is to make the punishment correspond as closely as possible to the original injury. And so there's a kind of artistry to that. I mean, that's something that, in a way, we have to admire about Eugene. He's an artist. His revenge is elaborate. It's enacted over a number of years. It cost him a tremendous amount of money, right? And I think this this is another thing that I think is is significant. Because Wu Jin has cameras everywhere, he's kind of a voyeur. He gets to watch all of this. So he's created this drama. He's presented Dasu with the script, which he kind of faithfully enacts. And then Wu Jin's sitting up in his high tower in his penthouse suite, where he's orchestrating all of this, pulling all the strings. He also gets the pleasure of watching it. I think there's a very important scene where Daisu and his lover, Mido, make love. Wu Jin fills the apartment with the Valium gas, and he enters so that he can just relish that scene from up close, because, of course, that is the crucial moment in the enactment of his plot. You know, Marcus Aurelius once said that the best revenge is to be unlike the person who performed the injury. Wu Jin gets his revenge in precisely the opposite way, by making Desu as much like him as possible. So it's not simply inflicting a kind of pain or suffering on Desu. It's forcing him to be a certain kind of person, which has parallels with the kind of person that Wu Jin is. As you said, the captor is basically a movie director. Mm -hmm. supervising everything, shooting the script, telling the actors what to do, and so forth. And it's very important to see that this is not workable, that success means killing yourself. That if you think this through and you live it out, when once mm -hmm. you have achieved that one timeless moment where like really is a like to like, where the crime you have suffered is the same as the one that your perpetrator must suffer himself, mm -hmm. when you really are at one with him, and after that it's over. Mm -hmm. Now, our protagonist, Odessu, supplies, however, the other part of being a movie director. You have to enact things. A movie is a series of enactments documented. You have to really do those things or imitations of them. You're not really killing people on screen, but it has to look like it. And so you have a dichotomy of structure and plot here, of space and time. A structure is a way to put things together spatially. A sequence is temporal, has to be enacted, there's no getting away from it. And in that sense, it's like the difference between recalling this song you once liked and recalling the song itself. Not that you listened to it or who sang it, but tell yourself, you know, how did it go? Ta -ra 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 -ra. All the time, all that sequence has to play out again. You have to bring back all that time. You have to play all the song. It is not instantaneous. It takes time. And so it is with the master and the apprentice in this sort of relationship. Somebody has to enact all this thing. And the question mm -hmm. for the captor is whether you can take it to the end and live with it. Or whether that experience consummates and destroys you. But there's also this question of whether a person is civilized or not. Not only that of, well, can you experience what is forbidden and then continue to live, but it's also can you experience what is forbidden and then feel the proper civilized response to it. 
can you experience forbidden pleasure and then suffer in the proper way for having experienced it? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, then you are some kind of monster, right? You are the tyrant. Yes, this is what Odessu has to live out, that he was a scumbag, but then that he's becoming a monster. And finally think this thing that he keeps saying, you have got to know that you're a beast, but nevertheless, don't you have a right to live? Yeah, that, I'm, no, I'm no better than a beast, but don't I have the right to live? Mm -hmm. There is there self-abasement and also dignity. Don't I nevertheless have a right to live? But it's like a plea, though. It's, yeah. So he's not saying, I am a beast and I have a right to live, or simply, I have a right to live. Right? It begins with the abasement, and then there's the plea. But don't I have the right to live? And of yes. course, that line is first uttered by the fellow who Desu is dangling from the rooftop by his necktie. Mm -hmm. And then I believe that's the last line that we hear, or at least that we read, that had been written by Desu to the hypnotist, right? mm -hmm. which yes. touches her heart. And again, it's in the context of a kind of plea for mercy. Yeah. Yes. As Peter said, you don't know if when you go through this experience, you're even human anymore. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, you have gone through the conventional understanding of humanity, which doesn't apparently live up to much scrutiny. But when once you have gone through that, that is your only image for your aspiration not to be mm -hmm. utterly debased. The humanity that starts out as insufficient, and this guy is a revulsive character, ultimately out of self-contempt. He makes a show of his misery so that other people can see what it's like to be him. That's his introduction, the first scenes, mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that he does it in front of the police is not an accident. There's something public to the character of that encounter, and, you know, it's the law. But although he starts experiencing our common humanity, which we take for granted anytime we recognize people, oh yeah, that guy's a human being, there's an implication there, just like me. Mm -hmm. At first he finds this insufficient. In the end, he begins yeah. to look at it as aspirational. It's only a plea. You would want to be that human being if possible, but it's not up to you. You begin to understand that it's not in your power to create yourself as a human being. That's what seems to be so strange. And I think now we can get to what it is that these people have in common. The darkness at the core of the movie that drives everything forward, even as it has stopped these two strange characters, one from the top of society, one from the bottom, stopped them in time, somewhere in the year 88 or 87, is the death of a girl, a suicide, brought on by rumors and the dark crime behind those rumors, incest between brother and sister. The girl is dead and her brother is the captor tormenting Odessu. And Odessu is the source of those rumors, the witness to that incest. Uh, but of course, Odessu, when he sees them together, he doesn't know that they're brother and sister. Right? Yes, and so that's true. The rumor that he starts is basically that, oh, there's this girl that I made overtures to who was kind of prim and proper and rejected me. But it turns out that she's a slut because right? I saw her in the chemistry lab with so-and-so. She has no idea that they are brother and sister. That's true. We know when we witness it, but he did not. And he did not want that rumor to start exactly. Yeah. He didn't want his friend to keep telling, but he couldn't help himself. Partly because, as you said, he looks down on this girl because she wouldn't give him the time of day. There's a certain mm -hmm. desire for revenge there. Right. Because she presented herself to me as better than me, but she's not. Her desires yeah. are what my desires are, but they reject me in favor of somebody else. That is the revengeful source of his rumor. Even though he feels bad about it as soon as he blurted it out, 
that seems to be his original transgression. But as you pointed out, he doesn't know just how dark dark is. He's yeah. only learning mm-hmm. at the end because yeah. he never thought through that transgression. As his captor puts it, no, I didn't drug you out of your memory, out of your own identity, your actions. You just forgot because you couldn't be bothered to remember. It, it just wasn't important, you. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. This is the key as we have tried to explain to what the captor is doing. He wants to mm-hmm. make that important to Odessu yeah. now. Yeah. Now it's going yeah. to matter to you, even if it didn't the first time around. We're going to go back in time, and the director helps him along. We mm-hmm. are going back in time and witnessing that scene in 87 or 88. Yeah. Well, there's the disproportion between the transgression, repeating something that he saw, that he probably should have kept it to himself, and the punishment. But then there's also the disproportion between his transgression and the consequences of that. One way of looking at it, Desu is just the victim of very, very bad moral luck. He is, in a real sense, responsible for the young woman's death. But, you know, certainly the action itself, repeating something that he heard, is not a grave infraction. But because of circumstances over which he had absolutely no control, he bears responsibility for the death of a young woman and then for all the other consequences that follow from that. Yep, there's a structure within which we can understand this strange situation, this shocking disproportion, as you point out. When we are confronted with these scenes, we see at once that you wouldn't think that this was going to lead to hell. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not something you'd want to see or say or do, but you wouldn't think where it would lead. And the movie is trying to point out that we're not accustomed to thinking about this properly. And so we have a structure there of public and private. Public is the community which is articulated by rumors. And these rumors keep those people together 15 years later. Odessu visits a hairdresser who remembers the times, who remembers these people, who can call a friend and say, yeah, how did that thing happen way back when? They still remember. And, mm-hmm. oh, actually, Odessu, it was your friend who started this and it was because of you. It is the public knowledge that leads him to remember who he truly was. He abandoned that community, went from the school to Seoul, and then lived mm-hmm. out his unfortunate life. But he forgot And, of course, that. he wasn't even there once the rumor caught fire. Exactly. But yeah. the community was there and they stand for the public. Whereas the private, the thing that is seen by a violation of secrecy, of privacy, right? Our liberalism is constituted by our privacy. Now, he violates the privacy, partly by accident, of these two young people having sex. He watches, not just through glass, but through a hole in the glass, Mm -hmm. which allows you to see directly even as it shows you that there's a hole there, that there's violence being done. Right, right. And and that adds an element of sordidness, I think, to his voyeurism, that he's watching this through a peephole. He doesn't know what he has seen, but what he has seen is that the private is ultimately constituted by the family, and this is always somehow dangerously close to incest. The privacy of the family, who knows what might be happening there? Mm-hmm. And that is tied up with the layers of secrecy Odessu has to go through throughout the plot to get to that level where he can finally confront. And we as an audience, having gone through this, can learn the truth about what happened. And then, like Odessu, we're confronted with this. We've breached the public, breached through the private, and we have seen incest. Where does that stand to society? Well, you could say that in an individualist world, that doesn't really matter. And then you could take a scientific, biological, evolutionary attitude to this and say that maybe just one of these accidents that happened, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. It has no meaning. But it did have meaning to all the human beings involved. And so somehow the public was involved in defining humanity, and that meant setting certain limits. 
and through false mm -hmm. revelations we get to the true revelation that the one thing that must be forbidden for the public to exist is incest and this mm -hmm. of course makes basic scientific sense yeah. communities that are produced incestually never go beyond a clan or a family and therefore never need the outside or the public mm -hmm. I think another way in which the role of the public is emphasized is with the rumor that Suja, the young woman, the rumor that she's pregnant. And she believes that rumor and even stops menstruating. So I think here we see the influence of public opinion. Here, public opinion exerts so strong an influence over this young woman's mind that it even affects what her body does. Yeah, well, that's where our idea of humanity comes from. What we learn is that in private, we never quite live up to it. We're always somehow below and above it. And it's so difficult to try to hold on to it in any form instead of becoming a monster. It suggests that the public defends us from ourselves. The public means that we can go on with life. Whereas if we were confronted with some crisis in private, in the secrecy, which is also the weakness and neediness of ourselves, we might not come through. We might not be as resourceful as we think we are, if we're really, really tested. I think there's this element of sacrifice in this storyline as well, right? That Sua dies, that younger brother may live. Mm -hmm. It seems that on the one hand, she is susceptible to public opinion. As I recall, I don't think the public actually says that she's pregnant. It's more that there are rumors that she's sleeping with someone and that causes her then to develop symptoms of pregnancy. But then as she's dangling over the bridge, you know, while her brother is holding her hand, she says, I don't regret anything, do you? There's at the same time this full acceptance on her part of experiencing this kind of forbidden pleasure. I mean, it's almost oddly serene and maternal, nurturing. And of course, then what wounds Wujin is that he shows cowardice, right? He allows her to make the sacrifice. That's what he can't get beyond. That in that moment of weakness, he let go of her instead of asserting himself and perhaps becoming um, sort of a non-person, right, with his sister. I mean, instead of choosing that particular fate, the harshness of a life that would be under permanent public censure, right, he chooses the safety of appearances, right? And for that, he can never forgive himself. Yeah, we see him at the one moment he has lost control of Odessu because he has removed his bugging device. He goes to find his friend to get a track of him. And there his friend repeats, as he had originally, the rumor that his sister was a slut. And what he yeah. does is he looks through the computers at this computer place and then finds a CD, breaks it to make a weapon, and yeah. stabs him with the plastic CD shards and kills that guy for having dared to sully the reputation of his sister. And then he talks to Odessu this one tells him I had to kill him because of you it's your fault yeah. and she was not a slut yeah. do not think that he tries to protect her reputation now so again the insistence on what the crime actually was and what it actually means is incredibly strange because if people didn't think there was any incest why did she have to commit suicide now, a shameful birth, if it had been real, might have disgraced her, and the reputation of a slut is a terrible thing. But it's nowhere near as dark as the dark secret of incest, for one thing, and for another, it doesn't seem to involve death. Just like the story that we hear from the brother and incestual lover of the girl that there was in fact no pregnancy, it was yeah. just the stories that created it. That's an immaculate conception, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, but of course, Desu says that... Was that, that real or not? How yeah. reliable a witness is he at that point? Well, Desu doesn't I, even say that, um, you know, your hatred of me must have increased when you found out that she was not pregnant after she died. So I think it is, given the taboos, I mean, this whole thing takes place in the 70s, and Korea is still a fairly conservative country by Western standards, but it was even more conservative back then. 
What is interesting is that when Dezu goes to the hairdresser and asks about Sua, the hairdresser replies, well, oh, she was such a pure girl. I don't recall that she would, you know, she doesn't, it would seem out of character for her to have like a boyfriend. But then she sort of catches herself and then she says, well, maybe there was somebody. But again, I mean, it, it's really uncertain, right? I mean, the rumors had a very wide range, right? So that it was probably very difficult for Sua to actually gauge what was being said about her. Right. I mean, yeah. it's conceivable for young people then to have romances behind the backs of their parents and their peers. But then, as you're pointing out, when something is so extreme and dark as incest, then that really changes the equation. It really highlights a kind of indissoluble connection between sex and death. Yep. I think you're right, especially to point out the sense of the captor that he's impotent. He specifically mentions this point that it was not his sex, it was the other man's tongue that yeah, spread. Mm-hmm. That if there was anything created, that's how it happened. And it does seem like it's not quite clear what the rumors were. How did things escalate to this point? Clearly it was a matter of shame regarding sex and that that demeans who you are as a person. And instead of there coming a child from sex and through a woman, what comes is a death. But, you, you know, but also like a, a kind of... It's anti-natural. Ab- I mean, you might recall in the scene where he looks at her picture in the yearbook, her face has been blanked out, right? It's not just that she died, but also that she has to be symbolically erased because of the conditions of her death. And that seems to have to do with shame. The public may have been inflamed by comments, rumors, things at the time, but because of the sacrifice of this woman, all was forgotten. There would be no living reminder of the outrage, scandal, whatever it was. It can all go away. Have, Have we gotten to the big spoiler, though? You want to do the honors? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll I'll, I'll let you do that, Peter, if you like. No, please. Go ahead, George. Go ahead. I mean, you know, yeah. (laughs) So, well, as I said before, Marcus Aurelius, you know, once said that, you know, the best revenge is to be unlike the person who performed the injury. And an old boy, Ujin gets his revenge by making um, Desu just like him. The main way in which he does this is he gets Desu to commit incest with his own daughter, who he thought had disappeared, gone to live with the family overseas. It turns out, while Desu was captive, he had been hypnotized on repeated occasions, and through various post-hypnotic suggestions, he had been led to a restaurant where he would meet his daughter, who is now going by the name of Mito. And Mido has also received hypnotic suggestions, so that when she meets Desu, she'll respond to him immediately. They end up falling in love. After a few days, they end up consummating their relationship. And when Desu finally confronts Wu Jin in the penthouse and reveals that he now understands the reason for his captivity, it's at that point that Wu Jin reveals what he's done, that this whole mission of revenge that Desu has been on has actually been, according to a script, written by Wu Jin, through which Wu Jin is able to enact his revenge. And he reveals to Desu that he had committed incest. So I think what's interesting here is that Wu Jin's revenge consists in actually making Desu guilty of the very same crime as Wu Jin, making Desu the double of Wu Jing. And I think this is revealed visually at a certain point during this big revelation scene where we see a split screen. One half is half of Wu Jing's face, the other is Desu's, and they come together to form a single face. Yes, I agree. It's a very powerful suggestion. Yeah. It's important to note that when this happens, it happens because Odesu comes into this final confrontation bearing the face of the public. 
He's the mm-hmm. agent of the city's punishment here. He says, it's your fault you're an incestuous monster. Mm-hmm. Right? It turns out that instead of that, he has to face what the man had to face. How do you live with having done that and the consequences right. thereof? Now, mind you, his captor, Wujin, does not want him to lose the object of his love and family. He's not trying to kill his daughter lover as his own sister lover killed herself and he let it happen. So he doesn't go that far. He wants to see whether this man can live with something with which he cannot live. He kills mm-hmm. himself, Wujin does. And of course, he doesn't get to learn. Will Odessu be able to live with it? All he knows is that Odessu has learned the lesson of shame and secrecy. There are some things that cannot be revealed because the public is not public anymore if it mm-hmm. happens. And so Odessu, as you have said, cuts out his tongue to answer for the crime of having spoken a secret that turned out mm-hmm. to be deadly without his intending it. But nevertheless, because of what people are and what society was like, this suggests that something has not transformed. This is not a curiosity from the old 70s South Korea that has no impact or interest in 2005 Korea. It is in some sense still alive, being constitutional of the private and the public, of country and family, respectively. I think also Odessu is an allegorical figure for Korea's rise at the same time. And as much as he represents these archaic forces, his self-overcoming, his self-transformation, you know, reflects also the rise of the country itself from incredible poverty. In the 1950s, the country was poorer than Ethiopia and Haiti. And it's now, you know, one of the uh, top 15 economies in the world. There was this kind of incredible collective will to sort of overcome the past, to create a modern society that Desu's rise also, in some sense, parallels. So in other words, I think it works really in both ways, that on the one hand, he embodies these pre-modern, archaic, even authoritarian forces that can erupt at any time, while at the same time also reflecting the way that a people can sort of rise, you know, in this almost meteoric way. But of course, it raises all kinds of very troubling questions, because once you move away from this past characterized by hardship, poverty and uh, need to, you know, society of skyscrapers and high technology, it raises, again, the basic questions of what it means to be human. And to what extent should we, is it possible to keep honoring the past when we live in in such a manner as to be uh, disconnected from any real tie to it? I think that's what the film also poses. I mean, of course, it's under these conditions of comfort and affluence that transgression suddenly becomes possible in yes. more, more ways than in this simple past where everyone was struggling. Yep. So I think it's important to notice that the repetition of incest a generation later in a completely different Korea is unconscious. Yeah. Because if mm-hmm. individualism dissolves the family, incest becomes yeah. inevitable, but by accident. Yes. And Mm -hmm. that's why the family law has to be reasserted in such a terrifying way. And this is what led me to my theory of the case, what the Vengeance Trilogy is about. I believe that the second movie is about the reassertion of the law of the family, and the third movie is about the reassertion of the rule of law. And the first one is about the collapse because of the transformation of Korea. Mm -hmm. All the families and public structures collapse there, and they are first destroyed and then re-elaborated and rebuilt to bring back an understanding of justice that fits for human beings, not for stories. Partly, of course, my guess is based on the pattern of the Oresteia of Aeschylus that ends up with the installation of rule of law in Athens in a trial by jury, Mm -hmm. where the jurors are half of them men, half of them gods. 
that is the trial and the execution that happens at the end of the movie Lady Vengeance that we will have to discuss next time. We are doing another one of these podcasts to bring this to a conclusion in a few weeks' time. And I believe we have set up quite a problem and shown what greatness there is in this dark movie. And also, strangely, hopefulness, as you're saying, right? And in some sense, it is about the reassertion of civilized values. They do, in spite of all the terrible suffering, express a kind of faith that these laws, principles, can be recovered. Yes, I would say that Park Chan-wook is harshly critical from a somewhat lefty point of view of the rise of Korea, but I think his insistence and his intention ultimately is to undergird it, to make it solid. Yeah not to do away with it. He wants it just to work in a human way that doesn't forget about the dire requirements on which tragedy is built. Ah, yes. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me. This has been a very good conversation, and I'm glad it's just the first one. We will do another one for Lady Vengeance soon, and perhaps we can find other such subjects to show why it is that, as audiences, we are drawn to these dark tales that reveal things we could have expected otherwise to have simply surpassed by politics and science at this point. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, thank you very much, Peter. Enjoyed it very much. And all the best until next time. Okay, yeah, thanks. Take care. Okay, bye.